You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hello, Kiefer. And uh, as always, we mention the sponsorship, uh, pretty much how it goes, is that you guys support the show with basically uh, buying the products that we put out. Uh, so if you find our information valuable, that's fantastic. Thank you for making all this possible. Uh, carb night, carb backloading, um, all, the, all the titles under the umbrella, the transforming recipes, uh, pattern of health. Uh, we even carry Deep Water by John Anderson and the Jossa Method by Jason Seib and Sarah Fragoso now. Uh, so thank you very much for supporting the show. And even if you've not supported it monetarily, we'd love for you to share the information with your friends. Um, that is a very important uh, aspect of the support that we get. So I think that's it for that. And, uh, you know... Most of the audience knows I have, uh, I, I won't say it's vegan bashing tendencies, but I do have a tendency to talk about vegetables and veganism and the downsides of uh, you know, those, those kind of eating styles. And a couple years ago, the UN put out a report to save the environment and to cut down on emissions and to make the world sustainable essentially for the growing population is that we really needed a vegan diet and that all nations of the world should should really focus on trying to push their populations to vegan diets and somebody had told me about some work on desertification and reversing the process and I looked up Dr. Alan Savory and I found incredible TED Talk about desertification and the reversal process that he's been working on. And we were able to get him on the show, which uh, he's here today. So thank you, Dr. Savory, for, for being on the show. Well, thank you. By the way, I'm not a doctor. I'm just Alan Savory. Oh, I, for some reason, I thought so you, you were... don't have to So you don't have to stand to attention. Okay. I appreciate that. So no sergeant or major in there either. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously I, I think in a lot of, a, a lot of industrialized nations, there's this idea that, um, the more plants we eat and the less animal products, the greater chance we have of saving the planet, particularly reversing some of these climactic changes we see in, um, for at least the last 20 years, I know the cattle industry has been blamed for certain aspects of environmental change. And when I watched your video, uh, I, I, for the first time, saw the clear argument that debunks that. So I was wondering if you could talk to us, just start a little bit about the process of desertification um, in various parts of the world. All right, well, you began with vegan, so let me begin there. Oh, um, awesome. <laughs> I, I, I don't do any vegan bashing because, uh, you know, friends are vegan. And mm. anybody who wants to be vegan, that, that's their choice and uh, wonderful. 
but they should make that choice based on, you know, either spiritual, religion, or health reasons, whatever those are for those people. But if any vegan has made that choice to help the environment, then I'm afraid that is not supported by any known science that I'm aware of, and um, and actually unintentionally does damage uh, to the environment and and to everyone. So let, let me explain that. Um, the uh, livestock, you mentioned the UN report, there have been many, but that was one that sparked off a lot of things, uh, have been blamed for land degradation turning to desert, ultimately. So that's why it's called that fancy word, desertification. That just means man-made deserts, uh, which are very large in the world. Now, Livestock have been blamed for that, not just since the UN wrote about it. They've been blamed for that going back thousands of years. You can read ancient texts and so on where livestock pastoralists are blamed for causing the desert. And you've only got to look at the destruction and the terrible land degradation on the public lands of America, the damaged riparian areas, and so on, uh, that many of the public are up in arms about quite rightly, where uh, the Bureau of Land Management, government agencies or ranchers are running cattle and we see that damage. So it's a very, very old thing. Now, this condemnation of livestock, uh, I'll, I'll talk cattle, but it's cattle, sheep, goats, everything. This, this uh, condemnation, as I say, goes way back and it was because too many animals cause uh, overgrazing and cause the desert. That was the reasoning. Now, that belief and observation and the belief based on the observation is so deep in humanity uh, that it became a scientific truth, despite no scientific proof. Um, now, when I say it became a scientific truth, let me illustrate with just one good example that I put in the TED Talk. If you look at a national park like uh, we have here in New Mexico, uh, not far from me, uh, Chaco Canyon, managed by National Park Service, I put a picture of it in that TED Talk. That has had many years, 70, 80 years, of all uh, livestock removed. It's had hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on it in soil conservation measures, trying to channel water flow, etc., and as anybody saw in the TED Talk, it's now deep gullies, bare ground, erosion, desertification or land degradation as bad as anything in Africa. So that's what happens when you have no livestock. Then how could we be blaming livestock? And the answer is it, it wasn't the animals causing it. It was the way we managed them. That's why um, I am very supportive of the people who condemn how we manage livestock today, but not supportive if we condemn the livestock. So when we have hundreds of thousands of uh, cattle in feedlots, etc., very damaging socially, economically, culturally, uh, environmentally, when we have livestock as we've run them for 10,000 years, causing the big deserts of the world, man-made ones, and causing the severe desertification 
of so much of California, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. I could just go on and on. Yes, I condemn that too, but condemn the management, not the cattle. That's so, can, can we relate this to, I know in textbooks growing up, I always learned about Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, the Fertile Crescent, and today it's not so fertile. And growing up, actually, I thought that that had more to do with over farming the land in general, um, not just cattle-based issues. And I grew up in Indiana, so I would see farms across the street from my house uh, support crops for three years maybe and then be barren literally for the next five where not even very many weeds grew. Um, so I had a, a slightly different attunement to this, and, and I do understand also how our current feedlots and the way we raise cattle also contribute to this problem of just really – overtaxing the land in large swaths to where it can't recover. So how did okay, you... Me, oh, go ahead. Uh, let me try and cover that. You've got two issues that you're talking about there. Okay, for one is uh, crop farming, mm -hmm. and then the rest is the rest of the land. Now, now, agriculture is not crop production. It's the production of food and fiber from all the world's land and waters. Now, when you look at the land in the United States or in the world, about 20% is under crops, crop production. Oh, okay. The 80% that is not under crop production is under agriculture, but it's wildlife, livestock, forestry, etc. Now, when you look at the land degradation, the fertile crescent, the, the croplands that they had, the irrigated croplands, etc., those from all the evidence we have, did not cause their failure of their civilizations. What caused the failure was the 80% of land um, that was not under crops that is rangeland or grassland. All right, that's where the, the big uh, failures came. And the same here. If you look at the earliest uh, civilizations here, like the uh, Chaco Canyon, Anasazi and so on, um, their irrigation-based uh, crop production didn't cause their failure. What did was the degradation of the other, the main area of the land, which controls your water. And that um, turn, began to turn into desert. And that happened before the Spaniards arrived and there were no livestock in America until the Spaniards came. So, so again, you see the futility of blaming it on livestock. Now, this is why it puzzled us for so many thousands of years and why it took me so long to sort it out. As I explained in that um, TED talk, I said, you know, we were 100% certain that livestock were causing the problem. And I pointed out that we were once 100% certain that the world was flat. And we were wrong then and we were wrong again. Um, it's not the livestock causing the problem. It's the lack of livestock, lack of enough livestock on land, like the totally rested uh, National Park. Or you can come here. Uh, I live by the Rio Grande River, and we've got an Aldo Leopold Memorial Forest along the river. And if he was alive, he'd be terribly shocked. It is just turning to desert so badly. 
The ground is bare, exposed, grass plants are black and dead. And that's in a nature preserve right here, you know, in Albuquerque. Um, so it's, it's a lack of animals as well. Now that needs explaining. If you live in where you did, where you grew up, or you live in the east or the west coast of America, coast of California, or in the mountains, anywhere where, or England or France or whatever, where every day of the year it's relatively humid, um, then desertification doesn't occur. It's not occurring in those parts of the world. Where it's occurring in the United States uh, and the rest of the world is where the climate of the, is seasonally humid and then dry. And so you can get three, four, five months, whatever, of rain or growth, and then you get five, six, seven, eight months, whatever, of very dry. Those are the environments where it's occurring. Now, in those environments, if the rainfall is very high, um, 80 inches or more, um, and you can get a solid canopy of trees or 50 inches, and you, a solid canopy can grow, then the soil cover is maintained by tree cover and desertification doesn't occur. But if the rainfall is low or high, up to 30, 40 inches or so, then the bulk of the plants providing soil cover are actually grasses. And that's why we call these the seasonal grasslands of the world. So some of them might be dry deciduous forests, like I'm dealing with in Africa, Mm -hmm. areas the size of New Mexico that are forest, but they turn into desert. And so there's no point in planting trees, no point in doing anything except try to solve it. Now, those look like forests, but the plants providing the soil cover are grasses. So the grasses are the key to it. And what happens um, if you rest land in the humid environments or those that are humid most of the year is the whole biodiversity, everything recovers. It, it, it doesn't turn to desert. It gets better and better and better. If you rest the oceans, they get better and better and better. Life starts returning. Now, if you take these seasonal rainfall and then humid areas, and particularly so if the rainfall also happens to be low, let's say under 20 inches or so, then if you rest them, totally by taking all animals off and doing nothing, leave it to nature, as people call it, like along the river here, then what happens is the grasslands begin to die because they co-evolved with vast numbers of large animals. And so the grasses turn to chemical breakdown, the dry grass stops, biological breakdown is stopped, and the grass plants begin to die and we blame animals, even when there are no animals on, on the land. Um, so it's, it's that process that, that causes the, the problem. Now, these seasonal humidity environments are the ones that over in the past, now in America I'm talking beyond 15,000 years ago, all right, uh, they, the deep soils and everything developed with vast numbers, unimaginable today, of large animals and the plants and the soils and the soil life all developing together. 
Now, today in, in America here, I believe we have 10 large animal species in the country, natural. Okay? Mm-hmm. 15,000 years ago, there were 40 more species. Wow. Those were all killed off by humans, and their role in the environment was replaced by use, trying to use fire. So, you know, what we're looking at is not a natural situation at all, and it hasn't been uh, for a long time. So once we began to realize this, all right, which I did in the 1960s, I then realized, okay, this is a biological problem. The land turning to desert in these seasonal uh, areas is a biological problem. We have to find a biological solution. Now, when you look at the things we can do, we are a tool-using animal. You, Kiefer, can't go and drink water now. If I ask you to have a drink of water, how would you do it? Unless you use technology in some form, you would have to go to the nearest river and drink with your mouth. Right. We cannot do anything without technology. So we have one tool, which is technology. That's chemicals, machinery, every artifact of the human mind from after the days of sticks and stones as technology developed through the history of the world. So we can use technology in some form. We've got fire, which we can use, all right? And the only other thing we can do is to rest the land, conservation, leave it to nature. There is no other tool available to science, climatologists, rain scientists, anybody, other than those three with which we can manipulate or manage our environment at large. So when you have about two-thirds of the world's land, that is essentially grasslands, needing to be biologically maintained, biological decay on the grass plants that die every year that aren't grazed, we cannot solve that problem with any technology imaginable because it's a biological problem. We cannot solve it with fire, which exacerbates the problem, and resting the land, removing all the large animals, aggravates the problem. Mm -hmm. So now you see why in the TED Talk, I said we really don't have any option now but livestock. Can we uh, talk about, so what I found was really interesting is you've alluded to uh, the use of fire, and uh, I, I think we've all, at least I'm, I live in Northern California now, uh, so, and I used to live in Florida, so I would see that all the time to either, you know, get rid of some of the dry grass or prevent, you know, large forest fires if it was in Florida or to clear some of the, the dry grasses here, uh, you know, what I would see very often were controlled burns, which I assume is that from the TED Talk, this is what we're talking about in how one of the methods that's attempted to try to resist desertification that's failing. So can, can we just briefly go over that, you know, what, why that isn't working the same uh, as, you know, why doesn't that work and how that's contributing? My, the biggest surprise I had there was the contribution to greenhouse gases that that also is. Yeah. Enormous. yeah. Okay, so the, the problem is, that when you've come through the growing season, try to picture in your mind 
um, a large area of grass. It all grows, and let's say it gets up two, three feet, whatever, massive grass growing through four months of the year, and now the rain stops, the growth stops, and it begins to dry out. Now, the plants stay alive underground, and all of the above material, stems and leaves, the, the grass plant can't remove them itself, you know, on their own. Right. Now, a tree growing in that area, if it's a deciduous tree in a seasonal rainfall environment, it can remove its own leaves. So it mm -hmm. drops its leaves onto the ground. If it's an evergreen tree, it doesn't. So the problem doesn't uh, arise there. Now, with the grass plant that cannot get rid of its own leaves, if they remain there and the growing points of the plant are at ground level, out of harm's way from grazing animals, because they developed with grazing animals over millions of years, now with this dead mass in the way, when you get after six months or whatever to the next growing season, the sunlight gets filtered through and not enough sunlight reaches the growth points, so the plants die, mm. begin to die, get weakened, and then die. So this standing material then goes into the next season, the next, and here along the river in this Elder Leopold uh, forest of mine, I've got lots of pictures I ride on a bike down there most days of grass plants um, six inches across, a foot or so high, a nice big grass clump that died 15 years ago, and it's now dark black oxidized mm. material like the outer layer of a thatch roof house, just going darker and darker and darker over the years, but it's still not broken down. And around it, there's just bare ground and no plants. So you can see why when humans began to see that happen thousands of years ago, when they killed off most of the animals, humans began to say, wow, these grasslands die. How can we remove that dead material? Oh, we can use fire. And that's wonderful because the plants then spring green and the game what's left comes back and we can hunt them. So it was used as a hunting technique and everything else. But um, when we remove the top with fire, first that's a chemical. The, it, the top was getting black because of oxidation, which is chemical and slow, and burning is just oxidation that's rapid. So all we've done is still used a chemical process. We've put a lot of pollutants into the air, way more than people realize. And what's more, we've burnt up all that material so there's no dead plant material to cover the soil. Because in grasslands, perennial grasslands, it's very rare uh, indeed to, for the base of the plants to be able to cover all of the soil. The, most of the space is spaced between the plants, and that is bare if there's no litter from the plants to cover it. So when we burn, you can see it very clearly. You see the burnt stumps remaining and six to nine inches or a foot between plants or whatever it is, and most of the ground bare. So you can get a fairly healthy grassland um, that most people would say is excellent. And if you actually look at the basal cover from the plants, it's almost always under 10%, usually under 5%. 
So 90, 95% of the ground, even in a grassland, is not covered by the grass plant. And that litter, that dead material, is what animals trample to the ground to cover the soil. And if you don't cover the soil, then the rainfall becomes less effective and it starts turning to desert. So there are really, again, fire just cannot do it. We've tried for 15,000 years or more. Well, in Australia, they've tried for 50,000 years, and it turned the whole continent into, uh, you know, a fire-dependent, badly desertifying continent. Right. So how how was it, in your TED Talk, you, you talked about the, the sequence of events that made you realize um, having the large grazing animals were so important. And then you went through and you, you tried to develop a model that, you know, from the pictures you showed is highly effective of how you should graze animals on the land. And you, can you, you know, what, what is that process of like, what makes it so different from how we raise cattle today, which, you know, it, it, yeah, it sounds completely and radically different. Yeah, you seem to ask a series of questions. The, the, the first was the process. First, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, first, it's important to understand that my thinking was like everybody else's. I was trained conventionally in a university, believing that too many animals cause land degradation. And then I described in the uh, TED Talk how when we began to form national parks and they began to deteriorate badly, I, just because of my scientific training, said it had to be too many elephants, buffalo, etc. So I did the research, I interpreted the data, as all scientists do, to fit the beliefs, and I proved there were too many animals, and we'd have to cut their numbers down to what the land could carry to stop the degradation. Well, you heard from that, it, it was such an unpopular idea, the idea of culling or killing animals in a national park. So we had a team of scientists uh, look at my work. They all agreed with me. And the government went ahead and shot 40,000 elephants. Well, we were all wrong. It got worse. It didn't get better. So that was the big jolt to me to say, look, whatever we believe as scientists, it isn't right. I've got to start my education over again. And... Um, so then when I came to realize that we had no option but to use animals, in practical terms, for most of the world, that means livestock, so cattle, etc. Then the problem I faced, that was in the 1960s, the problem I faced was how the hell were we to do that? Because we'd had thousands of years of very knowledgeable pastoralists who see their connection to the land domesticated the animals, their culture is totally tied to the animals. They, they know so much about their land and their animals, and they had bunched or mobbed their animals together through thousands of years, kept them moving, herding them around. Some of them were nomadic, but they had caused the great man-made deserts, the Sahara and so on. So clearly we couldn't do that. Then we'd had a 100 years uh, of modern range science and the introduction of fencing and so on. And we'd had a whole plethora of uh, rotational and other grazing systems, dozens of them. And all of those had accelerated the desertification. As I could observe in Africa, 
and then confirmed when I came to America. So the the big dilemma I had was how the devil are we going to raise, run these animals when herding, mob grazing, moving them has caused the deserts. Those all worked in more humid environments, but not in the very seasonal ones. And then all the grazing systems in the world had made it worse. So at that point is when I really said, look, what we're dealing with is a very, very complicated, complex situation. There's obviously going to be no way of having any rotational or prescriptive grazing. We have to work out a planning process, a decision-making and planning process that will cater for all of this complexity. So then, because none of us in the biological sciences had ever dealt with anything like that, I looked at other professions. What had businesses done, Harvard Business School, etc. And I found what I was looking for in military experience. Over centuries in Europe, armies had learned that you cannot win wars with any prescriptive system, management system, anything like that. You only win wars by incredibly uh, good planning, uh, using all the science available, etc. And so I looked at their planning techniques, and in particular, what interested me was the planning that they had developed for immediate battlefield conditions. So it's quick, it has to be done well, it, you have to be able to train people to do it very quickly when they come in from civilian life. And what had armies done to solve that problem over the last 300 years? And so I took what they had done and I just cribbed it. I just copied it. And um, what, all I had to do where they had had to plan for short periods of time um, because, uh, you know, battle only lasts a day or a few hours or, or a week or whatever, uh, where on the land with livestock and wildlife and crops and all these things, we had to plan a year ahead, sometimes in low rainfall, very erratic. We have to plan two years ahead. So I needed to be able to put all the complexity down over a long time. And for that was easy. I just put it on a chart. You just lay anything out on a chart and you can lay out time, area, behavior, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so I adapted the military planning developed a, a chart for it and did that in the 1960s and it immediately worked. We've, we've never, ever had that fail. Wow. It's amazing how there's crossover from such, you know, when listening to it, it sounds like, you know, such a basic go-to uh, that nobody was looking at, essentially, especially... Uh, you know, it sounds like the real turning point was when you first realized everything you'd been taught was wrong. It had to be wrong um, because yeah. of your experience. And then, you know, finding a solution, which was just, you know, it sounds like you basically just scheduled the planning of how you were going to use livestock, um, which, you know, I think is kind of the next topic here. I remember in your TED talk, you related this highly to not only did the land and the cattle evolve together, but there was another component that evolved with the cattle and the land that was very critical to how the animals would group and how the animals would move. 
Yeah. Well, let me explain that to you because it's very important. In the 1960s or so, I said I cribbed this military planning process, Mm -hmm. put it on a chart, and it worked. Now, it worked amazingly well. Uh, I mean, we began reversing desertification on the worst land in the country where we tested the ideas uh, first, uh, using nothing but increasing cattle numbers and planning the grazing. And so we did all that. Now, after about four years, and I was working with many, many, probably a hundred ranches by then over five countries. And I began to see erratic results. Now, in science, you know, we if we're not getting consistent results, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we're not there yet. So I realized, okay, something is wrong. Now, let me look at these erratic results. Where are they coming from in the planning? And they weren't. They were not coming from the planning. They were coming from my mistake in planning the complexity of soil, rainfall, um, slopes, plant types, wildlife, livestock needs. I had planned for all that complexity, and what I hadn't planned for was social and cultural complexity, and I hadn't planned for economic complexity. And you you cannot divorce in, in management the environmental complexity, the social and the economic so I realized, all right, so the mistake was mine. I'd solved the, the livestock on the land piece, but was getting these erratic results where it failed for a social or a cultural reason or an economic reason. So then I began working with many, many people, scientists, uh, ranchers and so on, in their individual capacity who were working with me and, and supporting me. And by 1984, we'd solved that problem. And that's when the word holistic came into the planned grazing. So it then became holistic planned grazing. And that word holistic just means that we use a framework, a holistic framework, to just make the decisions. Should you be running cattle at all? I mean, there are many areas where cattle shouldn't be run at all. And yet people aren't today making that decision properly. So you've got people in um, like Brazil clearing forests to run cattle. It's right. socially unsound. It's, it's environmentally unsound. It's economically unsound. But they're making the decision. So now how you run those cattle is immaterial. They shouldn't be there. And so we first make the decision. Are cattle needed? Are cattle necessary? Are cattle the best tool? to produce what we want socially, culturally, environmentally, everything. If they are, now let's do the planned grazing. Got it. I Just tying into Brazil and the rainforest, I remember seeing heat maps from satellites. This must have been 10 or 15 years ago where it looked like the canopy cover that was left uh, with the new – they'd put in regulations into place of – slash and burn, you know, they had to leave so much tree coverage per unit area before they would, during the slash and burn process, to bring the cattle in. And even though the rough surface area coverage had not changed greatly, the temperature on the land had increased significantly. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I I can see where in that instance, you know, with all of that data you're looking at, where it's like, you know, the the cattle can't help this land at this point. And yeah. those are kind of the, 
those were the complexities that you were bringing into your model. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's 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 first you've got to well you you've got to make the decisions socially, environmentally, economically right. So with the holistic framework, we we for every action we've got to have a context. All right. So um, everything that a farmer or a rancher or a policymaker or anyone does has an objective. You had the objective of calling me today to have the stalk. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot do anything, uh, no conscious decision without an objective. So every objective in management needs a context. And this is what I began to realize in the early 80s. So um, if I say to you, Kiefer, I, I, I have the objective of lighting a fire, uh, should I? You have no idea because you haven't got the circumstances, the context. If I just light a fire, I could burn the whole damn place down. If I light a fire to cook food, in the, you know, it's good. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with every objective. Now, when you look at, say, a, a farm or a rancher uh, wanting to run cattle, that's an objective. But what's the context? You see, any mm-hmm. objective without a context can lead to an unintended damaging consequence. So the farmer says, I want to run cattle. And he's in Brazil, say. All right, so what's the context? Well, I want to make profit. I want to produce meat. You see, it'll be a simple context. It'll usually be need, desire, profit, increasing production. If it's a government policy, I can guarantee you what it'll be. It'll always be the problem. We are poisoning weeds. We've got a weed policy because we've got problem weeds. That's the context. Now, If you look at anything in management, at any level, you absolutely cannot escape social complexity, environmental complexity, economic complexity. So I realized then in the 1980s, all right, everything we're doing has an objective and a very simple context, need, desire, profit, problem. And no wonder we've had a noxious weed eradication problem in America ever since I came here and over a billion, not a million, over a billion dollars is spent every year and they haven't killed a single weed in a single state and yet they keep doing it. And then it's poisoning the environment and bankrupting farmers and so on and so forth. Or we've got a drug policy and uh, what's the context? Well, our kids are taking too many drugs. All right, that's too simple a context for that complexity. So look at the consequences of the American drug policy. It's increased drug use, it's spread violence over the borders, and we've got more people in jail than Stalin had. You see, this is what's happening. It doesn't matter what you look at, the policy to remove wild horses and burrows on the national lands. It's millions of dollars. It's failing, the desertification's continuing. You can look at every policy here and you'll see it. So what we needed, on the farm, or for the let's go back to the Brazilian rancher, mm-hmm. he needs to say, uh, I want to run cattle. Yeah. Now, what's the context? And when we do holistic management, we use a holistic context. In other words, we get that farmer and his family to d- define very clearly how they want their lives to be based on their deepest spiritual cultural, material 
values. And then to define what has to be produced to live a life like that, not just food, mm-hmm. not just food, but to meet the cultural needs and everything. And then the third part of it, we say, is what must this environment that you're farming on, this land, forget what it looks like today, no matter how bad or anything else, what must this look like 200, 300, 500 years from now for your descendants to live a similar life? And when we define that, now we have a context. And now we look at the, that farmer, he'd be saying, okay, I want to run cattle to make a profit. And when you look at it in that context we've just described, he would immediately realize, oops, I've got to do something else. If I run cattle here, clear the forest, and make a profit, I'm going to be destroying my culture, destroying my country, destroying the environment. That's not what I want. Therefore, I've got to look for some other way to that's in context to support my family, my make my profit, whatever. And in a nutshell there, I've described to you what holistic management is. And then if that determines that livestock are needed, we use the planned grazing. Uh, it sounds like uh, since we're on the topic of Brazil, um, I'm not sure if you are familiar with um, the pedagogical work of Paulo, Paulo Freira, who worked in Brazil. And it sounds like some of the same challenges that he had and some of the same ideology um, that goes into this. And that's helping to educate the people about, you know, everything in general, but really helping to educate them about their culture, their place in the culture, and what information they really needed to learn to thrive in that culture. And this sounds like a very, very strong component of what you're talking about. Oh, it, it is. And, uh, and his work was wonderful that way. And he could have achieved amazing success there uh, because the tools are there to do it. In other words, whatever they do to preserve their culture, all right, they've got to manage the environment at the end of the day. Now, in those parts of Brazil where the humidity is high nearly all the year, you can do it because resting the land restores biodiversity. Okay. There you have it. Mm-hmm. So whatever you do with technology or fire, you can undo the damage by resting the land. Right. So okay. they've got the potential, okay. uh, never mind the detail of what they do, they've got the possibility of maintaining a stable environment for hundreds of years. And that's why um, in those environments, like uh, Yucatan in Mexico, when you see the failed civilizations, when their agriculture so destroyed the environment that they abandoned their cities, Okay, and just went back to sustaining small communities, the jungle or the forest recovered, and you find their cities under vegetation. Now, if you go to the Fertile Crescent that you referred to earlier, which even in high rainfall in parts of it, up to 50 inches of rain, is very seasonal, when agriculture destroyed the environment and people abandoned their cities and went on to sustain themselves small communities, etc., the desert continued to expand. All those cities we find under desert sand or in desert. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. Yes. So okay, you're... So, 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 
Go ahead. Uh, his work could have succeeded there had he been in talking about a very seasonal humidity environment. It could not have succeeded without bringing some animal into as a tool. I see. So your process, I was a little, I think I might have been a little misled during the TED Talks because what I really took away from that was um, the necessity of cattle. But this sounds, well, I mean, that's the perfect word, holistic. It really is about finding the right tool, as you said, to help the land recover. And, you know, in, in some instances that is resting the land and in other instances, it is this planned grazing and grouping of cattle that yeah. is the appropriate tool uh, because it's, it's so seasonal. There's several months of rain and then several months of drought essentially. And that tool, if, if you leave the land without that tool, essentially it has no choice but to basically maintain its steady state, which is Yeah, I think you're, you're summing it up pretty well. Look at, think of the whole world's land now mm -hmm. and think of about one-third of it roughly, largely in Europe and east-west coast here, etc. In the TED Talk, I outlined the problem area in red mm -hmm. in, a, in a big view. Okay, in that one-third, all right, livestock in some form, animals, are not always absolutely essential and in some instances in that particularly the tropical uh, humid uh, forests like brazil livestock should not be there they're damaging and it's very hard to undo that damage i tried very hard in paraguay i worked in 100 inch rainfall in those forests with people who were trying their best not to damage the forest and it just couldn't be done uh, we, we should not have had livestock there. Now, if you take the other two-thirds of the world roughly that is desertifying, the livestock have to be in the solution. And you, if, if you take them out, you cannot stop desertification because it, we've tried. Um, in the Arab, uh, uh, UAE, United mm -hmm. Arab uh, Emirates, I saw what they had done. They've tried very hard and they spent $30 billion on 1% of their land desalinating seawater, drip irrigating, planting trees, shrubs, etc. and the desert's just marching across it because nothing there replaces biological decay. Uh, in, if you go to Israel, in the Negev, you find the Israelis are trying very hard and they're putting in swales, harvesting water, getting the water to run to lemons, as they call them, where they plant trees. Uh, in some cases, they got drip irrigation. They were spending 10,000 euros per hectare. And the desert's just advancing because there's nothing there that can stop desertification. So, uh, and people have been trying. The Nabataean civilization were trying to do so 2,000 years ago um, with all the technology available to them, the water harvesting, the planting, it can't do it. So, so in that two-thirds of the world that is very seasonal, livestock have to be in the solution. Now, for the whole world, whether, whether you're looking at the humid areas or not, if we look historically, civilizations failed. They're city-based by definition, and they failed in all regions of the world. The only place we maintained a city-based civilization for 10,000-odd years is Lower Egypt, 
and that took the destruction of Ethiopia and areas up the Nile to provide the silt coming down the river and spreading at the delta. So armies and many invasions changed the civilization, but it's still there today. Now, if you take the mid-reaches of the Nile, the same levels of technology, skill, knowledge, everything, you have ruined cities in, de in desert. They couldn't save them because the silt flowed by. And they could not stop the desertification because they hadn't realized that they needed the animals to do it. So it's really, you know, you know fairly clear picture once people get it. So what about the argument? Uh, I recently came, came into contact with, um, with a vegan, very strict vegan and a scientist. He's in the biotechnology field. And, you know, his goal is to create, dis he calls them disruptive technologies that essentially plant and fertilize more and more land to get rid of any need for cattle whatsoever. And his argument is, well, if you just fertilize the land properly and you put more and more crops on it, um, the land, you know, will be infinitely sustainable and we can get rid of all cattle, which are so damaging, quote unquote, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, is, is there any... I mean, to me, he was kind of putting the cart before the horse. He just assumed that we could sustain land indefinitely with enough fertilizers, you know, ignoring the fact that most of the fertilizers we use these days come from petroleum products. You know, he, he was, you know, ignored all that. He just assumed it could happen. Is that even, it sounds like that's just not even a realistic possibility in this two thirds of the world. You know, we really do have to bring in the bio, the biological component back into the land. Is that a correct? Yes. Uh, that's why um, I think I said in the TED talk, and I will be saying in my talks next week in California, no technology even imaginable, no technology even imaginable can replace biological decay over billions and billions of hectares of the world every single year. So forget it. They, it that, that is even more fantastic than science fiction and space travel. <laughs> That's, that is a great, I'm actually very glad to hear that. Um, not because I'm against of just a plant-based um, eat, eat food economy for the world, um, but, you know, I think a lot of the diet paradigms that I use and a lot of the dietary advice that has helped a lot of people in my, in my audience is all very heavily animal product based. So it, it seems to me that that is a very strong component of health in the human diet. And so it's, it's also good to know that having the cattle there is also a very important component of health to the environment. So I guess the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, yes, a point I try to make in a lot of my talks is this. Let's assume for a minute that you don't believe in climate change, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's assume that uh, no carbon can be taken out of the atmosphere and put back in the soils of the world, of the world's grasslands, the two-thirds. Let's assume that. None can be put back. Let's assume that cattle put out 10 times the methane they do. Okay, mm -hmm. let's assume that every human became vegan. 
Now, those are untrue, those three things, but let's assume them for a moment. Okay. Now, what would you then do about desertification, which leads to increasing floods in severity and frequency, increasing droughts in frequency and severity, uh, poverty, social breakdown, pastoral genocide, mass emigration of people across borders into city slums and drowning in the Mediterranean, ideal recruitment for Al-Qaeda and problem organizations in that uh, social breakdown, and it causes climate change. So what would you do about desertification? You've got technology to use, Mm -hmm. you've got fire to use, and you've got resting the land to use. We've all become vegans. We don't believe in climate change. We don't believe any carbon can be put in the soil. Cattle put out 10 times the methane. What are you going to do about those problems that are symptoms of desertification? The answer is you can do nothing about them except to use livestock properly managed. So even if we let the cattle die, let the vultures eat them, we're still going to have to use the cattle. What is this meant for in areas where you where cattle was the appropriate tool to fight and reverse desertification? What has this meant for the local populations in terms of you know, the whole picture culturally and particularly their food supply, the health, uh, the stability of that. What were those changes that you saw that accompanied the reversal of the desertification? Uh, it's, you know, we're doing this uh, in, on millions of acres now on six continents, everywhere except the Arctic and the Antarctic. On every other continent, we're doing this now. And through our Savory Institute, we're connecting hubs of people around the world, locally led, locally managed, where scientists, environmentalists, and ranchers, pastoralists are collaborating. So we're getting a lot of data beginning to get collected from all of that. And everywhere, it's, it's a consistent pattern. Uh, in every instance, the land is improving. In all the reports we get, socially, culturally, people, it, things are improving for them. The pastoralists in northern Kenya, uh, some of whom trained with uh, me in in Zimbabwe, uh, they openly say this is the only thing that will save their culture. Uh, So we're getting these reports just over and over again. Now, somewhere, if it wasn't working, we'd get the opposite, but we're not. So everywhere it is. I went to Australia many years ago for a book signing, my wife and I, and we had trained a couple of people in Australia to help others and train them. And when we went there, it was my first visit there, we were met by 300 people that came together at this book signing. And uh, they came from every state in Australia except Tasmania. And what I liked about it, what was very moving to me, was several people came up to me and just wanted to shake hands and said thank you. And I asked them, what are you thanking me for? And in each case, they said, you saved our family. Oh, that's, that's amazing that I, you know, oh. I was going to say, you know, it's not to make a pun, but it almost seems like the movement has been more like a grassroots movement, so to speak. But, and, and it sounds like it's amazing that you're able to make the changes in these people's lives. And it sounds very powerful, but it, and it seems like it should like happen more instantaneously. What is really keeping progress from moving forward and then really just catching fire, so to speak? Well, it is catching fire now, particularly since Ted. 
the TED Talk, by going to now approaching 3 million people, still going up by about 1,000 a day, in 20 minutes, that did more to advance the whole uh, spreading of knowledge worldwide than 50 years of me struggling to get the information out. Now, the blocking the information out is not individuals um, over those 50 years. It, it's the same thing. Nobody's being bad. Nobody's got wrong motive. It's the same thing that has happened throughout history. Every time somebody has come up with a counterintuitive, totally unbelievable, you know, in society's view, solution to something, all right, there's been uh, fierce resistance to that from institutions. So in the years, over the last 50 years, and to this day, no cattleman's organization has ever supported what I'm saying. They've opposed it or been apathetic. No environmental organization, no university. Now, hundreds of individuals within universities, government agencies, cattlemen's organizations have helped me. That's how we've developed it. That's how we've spread it. But they've all been acting in their individual capacity. You see, how you and I are as people is different in our individual capacity from when you put people together in an organization. Mm -hmm. The organization behaves differently from how individuals do. You can have the nicest dogs in your homes if you're in a community and your dogs all go out of your homes and get into a pack. That The behavior of that pack and of your dogs becomes very different from in the home. And it's the same with humans. So this is well known if you study systems, uh, system science, some of the mm -hmm. social research, etc. And institutions, if you look at them, will always be using and supporting the leading thinking in the prevailing thinking of the day. So go into any cattleman's organization, um, environmental organization, whatever, university, and you can pretty well be sure they'll be using the latest software, the latest computers, the latest cell phones, blah, 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 because the whole world believes in technology. Now, when it's a counterintuitive thing, uh, like the guy that first discovered bacteria before we knew it, or what my, my work discovering that we have to use livestock, that's counterintuitive. And there you'll find institutions, even if the individual's uh, uh, leaders of them want to change, institutions cannot change ahead of public opinion. So now, because of TED and this recent PBS program that's just came out about a week ago, which is terrific, the second section of that on grasslands, because that's gone to, it was going to go to millions of people. This will accelerate the change and help the institutions to change. And even since TED, some institutions are already changing and openly collaborating with us, some universities, some major NGOs, and they're collaborating with the Savory Institute now, getting data and so on. And that some of that comes out in the, in the PBS uh, release on the grasslands of the world. So it's all happening, uh, but most of it since TED. Not entirely due to TED, because the 50 years ago when I was trying to put this out, there was a deep arrogance in the scientific community that they had answers. 
and the people, the ranchers, the farmers, the pastors were to blame. That arrogance has dissolved over the years. There's much less of it today. There are far more people today questioning what we're doing instead of being arrogantly saying it's right. There's so many people saying what we're doing isn't working and starting to look for new ideas. And then Ted coming on top of that was like the straw that broke the camel's back and now it's spreading rapidly. It's incredible. I, I think I going back to you know, the discovery of bacteria, I remember, you know, at first it was laughable and as it did start to gain credence, that's when the institutions actually started to support uh, some comics, you know, mocking the idea. I remember one I'd seen uh, that was published was, you know, it was like a Petri dish with um, a magnifying glass over it. And the magnified image was like horses and giraffes and all kinds of like miniature versions of animals sitting in this Petri dish. And it was making fun of, you know, this whole idea of a plethora of biological entities, you know, at that microscopic scale. So yeah. I'm hoping you can kind of, that, that always seems to me to be the next phase in knowing that your movement has gained too much ground. And uh, I'm hoping you skip that phase to where the, the institutions start to support stuff like that. But, you know, the, the good news is if that does happen, that means you've gotten to the point that they're scared. Well, I don't know about scared, but it is happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the fellow Ignaz Semmelweis, the Hungarian doctor, uh, many people don't know his story, but essentially he discovered bacteria before we knew they existed. He found that if he washed his hands after cutting up corpses before he went to the maternity wards, he saved a lot of women's lives. Now, his peers and everybody of the day uh, they ridiculed him and that. Usually they ridiculed the person, as they did, mm -hmm. and apparently they drove him into a mental asylum uh, where he died. And so I, when I learned about that, <laughs> I, jokingly say, I jokingly say, thank God I was uh, insane 50 years ago, so <laughs> at least I haven't been driven into a mental asylum. But the, the main thing is change is happening now. Nobody's being bad. It wasn't deliberate. It's just how we are. And thank goodness it's happening. Finally, the change is starting. It will not go back from now. I'll guarantee that. It'll now the ball will keep rolling. And uh, hopefully we can get going and offer the world a little bit more hope. So in this whole process, what can it, it sounds like a lot of what, what's happened already was just normal people um, in need of this information, you know, picking up on it and using it. What, what could the average person who's not, who doesn't have the need or the ability to immediately apply this information, what, what could they do to, you know, help, okay, well, help with this? Yeah, what they can do very much is, is the, the, go to the Savory Institute and, you know, this hub network is developing around the world. I'm hoping city people will adopt hubs close to them so city people can get start learning far faster because all the economic power and the political power has shifted to cities now. Over 50% of the world's population is in cities now, and we're not going to be able to save cities unless we can stop the or seriously address the desertification and climate change. So ordinary people can start going to the Savory Institute, finding out about those hubs, working with those where they can, 
Now, as, as the knowledge spreads, uh, which is happening now, we can begin to say, take a second step. This first step is trying to focus on the grasslands of the world because it's two-thirds, and it's the low-flying, low-lying fruit, if, if you use that cliché. Uh, there we can begin to reverse desertification at almost no cost except education and training, very little cost other than that, and it's crucial. So we can begin to do that, and we're focusing on the grasslands with these hubs and so on. Now, there's a second issue. When, in 1984, I said we could get consistent results, I realized at that point that I had hit the tip of a much bigger iceberg. And let me explain that briefly. The, if you read uh, Costa's book, uh, The Watchman's Rattle, she looked at past civilizations that failed and concluded that they did not fail only because of their agriculture. They failed because their societies could not deal with the complexity of rising population and deteriorating land. So what their societies did was they tended to turn to faith or religion, if you like, and sacrifices and so on, and they shelved the problems for future generations. Well, in many ways, you can see that's what we're doing globally today. Mm-hmm. Now, another person who studied this in great detail and did incredible work is John Ralston Saul, um, who I met years ago. He wrote the book Voltaire's Bastards, and what he did was he looked at major blunders in history and how in the time of Napoleon and Voltaire, um, the, the thinkers in the world thought these blunders were coming from amateurism. In other words, you could inherit or buy your position in the company, the army, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And so they were going to put a stop to that, and we were going to go into the age of enlightenment. And from then on, you would not head any organization unless you were a highly trained professional. And today you have companies and armies and everything led by CEOs and people with high levels of professional training. And Napoleon spread that through Europe more than any other leader. So what Saul did essentially was to study that and say, well, let's look at what happened. Did the blunders decrease or not? And what he found was that the major blunders around the world increased, got worse under expert uh, leadership. Um, Now, what he concluded was that this occurred because our whole education system is in narrow silos of knowledge and professions. And um, because of that, we cannot pull the whole lot together because we're all protecting our turf. Uh, Each profession has its own jargon. He explains not to communicate better with the public, but to protect the profession from criticism from any other. And he points out that you can learn a new language, French or German or whatever, easier than you can learn the, the jargon of an accountant or a medical or a range scientist or whatever. Um, the only way you'll learn that is by becoming one. 
So he, he feels he didn't have a solution to it that I could see, but he felt the problem was not the shelving that Costa saw, but the fact that our education so compartmentalized um, and that he attributed the problem to. Now, I think from what I accidentally discovered that it's simpler than that. And it comes back to what I said earlier. We could not deal with the complexity because our objectives in management had too simple a context. Now, if you look at uh, system science, what they call hard systems are everything we make, the computer, the phone, the watch, the, the plane, the bomb, the space travel, no matter what you look at, the home you're living in, everything we make has to be done using technology and expertise. I'm, I'm such a simpleton, I can't even make a watch. Right. You know, because I don't have any expertise. Um, all right. So when you look at hard systems, they're not complex. They're very complicated, too complicated for my mind, but they are not complex. They're not self-organizing. If a part is missing, they don't work. If a battery goes flat, they don't work, <coughs> etc. And there we're just getting cleverer and cleverer, doing further and further space exploration, bigger weapons, uh, smarter computers, etc. Now, when you look at everything we manage, agriculture, oceans, fisheries, politics, religious organizations, human organizations, everything we manage, there you have what system scientists call soft systems. Those are human organizations, and you have nature or natural systems. Now, both of those are not complicated, they are complex. They are self-organizing. If a part is missing, they keep going. They change, but they keep going. If a person, chairman of an organization dies, the organization doesn't die. They just appoint a new chairman and carry on. If you fish out one species of fish in the ocean, the ocean life doesn't die. It continues, but it changed form. Uh, so these are self-renewing and complex. Now, when we look at where we're running into trouble, it isn't with the hard systems. It's with everything we manage. And it doesn't matter where you look, whatever policies you look, wherever you look, we're running into deeper and deeper problems with the things we manage. And that's culminating to well, at the end of the day with climate change. So accidentally, I have hit on the tip of a very big iceberg here. So once we can get the knowledge in the public spreading around the grasslands and people beginning to manage holistically there, then we can get the knowledge spreading till the public is insisting that all policies be developed holistically. Now, the moment we start developing all policies and development projects um, with a holistic context, you begin to see a totally different result. Now, we've not had anybody do that. So we have no case study at the moment of any government or environmental organization or anything changing and developing policy holistically. But what we do have is we have a lot, many cases, where people in organizations training with me have done this and seen what is possible. 
and it is very different indeed. But they cannot change until the public changes. I think that is an incredible place to end the podcast on. <laughs> that, that was like amazingly insightful and just enchanting to listen to, actually. I, that is quite the insight and you know, really exemplifies what everybody can do. And the first step, well, the secondary step here is to, I mean, essentially it's as easy as spreading the information and helping people understand the, the context where that information is important. Um, and yeah. if, if you don't do that, then there's a good chance that it's going to take longer. Or the message will get lost and the value of the information could get lost as well. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, it's what what way I would sum it up is there isn't a the solution. What there is now is a way to begin to work it out and an understanding of the need for livestock in certain areas and an understanding and of how we can work out these complex management situations more successfully. So once we now we've got that understanding, there's no the solution but there's now a better way to work it out, whatever is appropriate, wherever you are. And then the other thing is that we've all got to just start collaborating. This is way, it's too profoundly serious. It's way beyond all of us as individuals or organizations. And thank goodness that collaboration is happening. The people working on diet, paleo diet, health concerns, they're beginning to coalesce with us uh, and others. And so the collaboration that's needed is beginning. And we've just got to speed all that up. That's thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, great having thank you. Thank you on. for inviting Yeah, fantastic conversation. Thank you. This was far more than I was expecting from your TED Talk. So I'm really thankful for this opportunity to, to talk with you and, and to get this recorded for the audience. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. And um, everybody can find basically all aspects of your work and, and how to contribute at thesavoryinstitute.com, correct? Dot org. Dot org. Okay, we'll make sure we get that link in the show notes so yeah. everybody can go there. Yeah, and they can also learn about this new PBS broadcast and about the whole hub movement around the world. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again for being on the show. and. Um, that is another episode of Body IO FM. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.